friends, tonight we're going to focus our attention on Psalm 88. If you would turn there in your pew Bibles and read along as I, or follow along as I read this psalm. This psalm comes at the end of the third book of the Psalter. Um, there are five books in the Psalter, and this comes towards the end of book three. And as you will soon find out, it's one of the darkest psalms in all of the Scriptures, if not the darkest. It's a psalm of lament of somebody who is in deep darkness, the, the dark night of the soul in the midst of trial and trouble. So please follow along as I read Psalm 88, God's holy word. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon, which is the place of destruction? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And here we're going to end the reading of God's holy word. Well, what was not that long ago, but seems much longer ago because of the virus that has beset our lives these last seven or eight months or more, not that long ago, Reverend Niemeyer preached a series of sermons on the Psalms. I'm sure you still remember that. And one of the things that we were taught so helpfully during that series was that uh, the Psalms are not a random collection of Psalms. Uh, we tend to think of them that way, at least in part because we have our favorite Psalms that we go to time and time again. And then there are those psalms which we typically skip over. We don't spend a lot of time on those psalms. You might even wonder, well, how did those psalms make their way into the Bible anyway? But it's appropriate for us 
to think of the Psalms, even though written over many years, although different types are found in the Bible, although different authors compose the Psalms, it's appropriate for us, it's necessary for us to recognize that there is one book of the Psalms. It's a very intentional collection of 150 Psalms. They have a clear purpose. They have a unified message. And if we're truly to appreciate the Psalms and really benefit from the Psalms, it's helpful for us to understand that and to understand the flow, the structure of the Psalms. One of the things we learn from Reverend Niemeyer is that Psalms 1 and 2 really serve as an introduction to the book of the Psalms. They give us the theme, the thrust of the Psalms. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who doesn't dwell among the wicked, but whose delight is in the law of God. Reminds us that that if we are to have a, a happy and a blessed life, we must follow God's Word. Psalm 2 speaks about the glorious King that God has put on the throne over heaven and earth, who is coming, who has come in Jesus Christ, and who's coming again to claim His victory over all. And so, while the Psalms, all 150 of them, reflect the entire range of our emotions as human beings. While we can say and sing and recite all of these psalms, they are ultimately about Jesus Christ. What's described in the psalms were experienced by Christ and fulfilled by Him. Well, tonight we have a psalm before us, Psalm 88, which I'm sure you've noticed is a very sad lament. It's the lament of an individual in the midst of a very difficult situation in his life. He begins in verse 1 with the recognition that God is his Savior, but the tenor, the tone of this psalm quickly plummets into despair. The darkness of the soul is described here. In fact, Psalm 88 ends in utter darkness. Darkness is the last word in the Hebrew text of this psalm. In all appearances, there's no hope offered in this psalm. It is by far the most depressing and hopeless-sounding psalm in the entire Psalter. The inspired author has fallen into the dark night of his soul, and it seems that God is silent. It seems that God is no longer answering his, his cries. God seems far away. He seems absent amidst his trouble. I wonder Brothers and sisters, have you ever felt that way? Do you feel that way tonight? In the midst of troubling circumstances, maybe a besetting illness, a deadly cancer, unbelief among your family members, have you ever felt that God is not answering your cries, that He is far away from you, that His hand is heavy upon you. Well, tonight we're going to look at the, the, the distressing situation of the psalm writer. We're going to see, secondly, that, that Christ's experience of the deep darkness of death on the cross reveals that this psalm is not as hopeless as it may sound. We're also going to see that this psalm has great significance for us as believers gives us wonderful instructions for how we can respond to God when He seems silent, when He seems absent from us in the midst of trial. 
We're going to look tonight at the psalmist's cries, the Messiah's crucifixion, and the believer's comfort to see that though God sometimes does seem absent from us, we as believers have reason to cry out to Him still in hope, in faith, even in despairing times. Let's look together, first of all, at the psalmist's cries. This psalm really can be broken up into three sections, three sections that are introduced by different ways of describing the psalmist's crying out to God. In verse 1, we read, day and night I cry out before you. Verse 9, the second cycle, every day I cry out to you, O God. And then in verse 13, in the morning I cry out to you. We get the picture that this psalmist is using every, every avenue, every possible approach that's available to him to approach God. From evening to morning to evening, he is crying out to God in distress. Maybe that's familiar to you. Maybe you've spent many sleepless nights crying out to God in prayer and in distress. Well, in the first cycle of crying out to God, verses 1 through 8, you notice that the psalmist begins with a confession of faith. He begins by confessing that the God who saves, the God of all salvation, is his God. But then he quickly moves to his troubling situation and asks that God would hear him in his troubles. How does he describe his troubles? Verses 3 and 4, he says, my soul is filled with trouble. He's weary of the trouble in his life. He's had enough of it. He's full to the brim with trouble. Usually in the Scriptures, when, when someone is filled with something, it's a good thing. The Lord has filled my cup. He's filled my life with blessing. But here the psalmist is only filled with trouble and trial. In verse 5, he confesses, it's as if I've been set apart, not with the living, not with those who are thriving and blessed, but I've been set apart with the dead my vitality is gone. My life is gone. I'm just a shadow of the man that I once was, he confesses. I'm as good as dead. I've gone to Sheol, as it were, the place of the dead. I, I feel not God's loving presence, but His absence. In verses 6 and 8, he goes even further. Not only does God seem absent, God seems actively against him. God seems to be causing these distressing situations in his life. Even his friends don't want to spend time with him. They've forsaken him. He's a byword among them, a word of scorn and disdain. And, and, and he feels that God has caused this in his life. And so he huddles alone confined to his own personal prison, surrounded, it seems, not by God's love and presence, but by God's wrath. In the second cycle of his crying out to God, verses 9 through 13, despite the fact that he dwells in the dark shadows of death and despair, he doesn't stop crying out. He continues to cry out to the God of salvation, raising his hands in prayer, in faith, to God. 
In verse 9, much like a little child might, might stretch out his or her hands to mom or dad when he's, or she is in trouble, he, he, he reaches out his hands to God. He, he prays fervently. His eyes weep. His voice cries. His hands are outstretched. His heart breaks under the trouble which he finds himself. And he begins to question God. Verses 10 through 12. Is your love and your covenant faithfulness found here in this place in my life of death and despair? Is your love found in the place of forgetfulness? Isn't it true that your miracles, your wonders are performed only among those who are blessed? I'm reminded of Psalm 6, verse 5, the psalmist asks, who praises God from the grave? His argument amounts to this. If the believer dies apart from the blessing of God, how will God's honor be preserved? Who's going to bear witness to his truth and his righteousness? And so this troubled man calls for God to vindicate his own holiness by preserving him and protecting him, rescuing him from this trouble. Finally, the last cycle, verses 13 to 18 This is the psalmist's cry in the morning. And he pleads once again, O God, why? Why have you rejected me? Why have you cast off my soul? Why should I suffer like this all day long? He looks back on his life from his youth all the way up and he sees only trouble. He looks to God and he sees only terror. He looks around him and he finds no human comfort from his friends who have forsaken him. His closest friend, his closest companion is the darkness. And again, that's where this psalm ends. We might expect, like the book of Job, for God to give a response, but there's none coming. It ends in darkness. And you might wonder, With darkness as the final word of this psalm, what's the role of this psalm? What's the purpose of this psalm in Scripture? Is this really something that you and I as believers can sing? Can we recite this in the darkest hours of our lives? Well, we're going to see very soon that Psalm 88 is a legitimate prayer for Christians. But it's ultimately, it's first and foremost, the prayer of Jesus Christ amidst the suffering of his entire life, especially his sufferings on the cross. This psalm reminds us that our Lord Jesus Christ is sympathetic to the weakness of our human nature. Our Lord Jesus Christ understands very well the kind of mourning, the kind of grief that lasts from day to night and back to day again. Jesus understood feelings of abandonment. You might think that in the midst of our trials and troubles, when God seems so far away that he can't possibly understand what we are experiencing. But the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, especially on the cross, prove that God is very sensitive to and he understands our ceaseless cries, though it may seem like he is indifferent. Because God proved himself to be a righteous judge by sending his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross to give justice to us, his elect, who cry out to him day and night. 
Jesus is sympathetic to our weakness and our trials because he himself experienced the greatest and fullest extent of the abandonment and the grief described here in this song. In fact, we're told that our Lord Jesus Christ experienced this kind of suffering, not just on the cross, but during his entire life. We read this in Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Christ's whole life was a life of suffering. We read even in his moments leading up to the crucifixion while in the garden in Gethsemane, even though the the triumph of the resurrection was near on the horizon, just a few days away, Jesus was overwhelmed by the darkness of the pit, the thought of his death on the cross, the very horror of the resurrection made him Sweat drops of blood made him to be, like the psalmist says, as one already dead. But then he actually went on, and he faced the horror of bearing the judgment of God. In verse 7, the psalmist says, your wrath lies heavy upon me. But Jesus literally fulfilled this because the wrath of God truly surrounded him. It laid heavily upon his shoulders. The psalmist cries out that his friends, his companions have abandoned him. Our Lord Jesus' friends truly abandoned him. His closest companions ran when Jesus was taken into custody. In verse 14, the psalmist asks, why, O Lord, do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? Our Lord Jesus cried out from the cross, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The questions here in verses 10 through 12 are very similar to Jesus' experience in Luke 22, where the agony leading up to his crucifixion was so great that the Lord called out to his heavenly Father and he said, Lord, remove this cup from me. Take this suffering away. But yet, what did he pray? Father, if you are willing, take that cup. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And as a result, the wrath of God swept over Jesus. It swept over him. It surrounded him like a flood. It consumed him. You and I will never experience that. We may experience the correction of God because we are sons and daughters of His, but we will never experience the punishment, the wrath of God as it came upon Jesus Christ. Because Christ, our willing substitute, came and bore that punishment. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted so that you might never be stricken, smitten, and afflicted on account of your sin. You and I can take the words of verses 10 through 12 on our lips. We can cry out to God to vindicate our cause, to come to our defense, to remove our suffering. But the reason we can do that 
It's because Jesus came and called upon God to vindicate His sacrifice on the cross. We can call out to God for vindication because God came, Jesus came to earth and said, send me through the torments of hell so that your people might be vindicated, so that your righteousness, your justice might be honored. So we see God's love, we see His justice displayed through Christ's descent into the darkest pit of death that He might raise us up to everlasting life. You see, it's Jesus, first and foremost, it's Jesus, your Savior, who experienced for you the, the darkness, the abandonment, the silence of God expressed here in Psalm 88 as He hung on the cross under the judgment of His heavenly Father. Jesus' life ended in death and darkness, just as this psalm ends in darkness. And yet, we know that while darkness may be the final word of this psalm, it was not the final word for our Lord either, because He rose victoriously. He conquered sin and Satan and death and hell for you. Our comfort as believers, our assurance comes from knowing that because Jesus experienced the dark night of the soul that's described here, we can be absolutely assured that death and darkness will not be the final word for us. This psalm finally comforts us as believers, but it also instructs us, instructs us how to endure suffering, to endure those dark nights of the soul in faith and in trust. First, this psalm reminds us, teaches us that, that we are not mere spectators in this sad psalm. We might read a psalm like this and say, well, that doesn't really describe me. I'm not sure that I could really take those words on my lips, but we can. God has given us these words to take upon our lips in the darkest moments of our lives. We can take these words upon our lips as we are prayer companions with those who are depressed and outcast. These words are for our use in our lives. These words help us to remember and recall that, that suffering is to be a reality in our lives. Suffering, sometimes unrelieved sufferings, are part of our lives as believers as we groan for the renewal of all things. This psalm, which we can take upon our lips, is a sharp reminder that we are still awaiting our full adoption as sons, the fullness and, of the experience of our redemption in Jesus Christ for which creation groans. The psalm also calls us to see the faithful providence of God in suffering. There's an interesting note here at the beginning of the psalm at the prescript here. We're told that this is a masculine of Haman the Ezraite. You may say, well, I don't know who that is. Well, he doesn't appear on the script, pages of Scripture too often. He's the appointed, inspired author of this psalm. It's very likely that Haman was one of the first members of the singing groups or singing guilds that King David set up, to which we owe many of the psalms of the sons of Korah, one of the richest, one of the most meaningful and beautiful set of songs in all of the Psalter. But depressed and burdened though Haman was, his name meant faithful. 
faithful. And even in the midst of his great suffering, he realized that his existence, his life was far from pointless. God had appointed him to write this psalm, this new song of redemption in Jesus Christ that would be included in the Scriptures. His words were appointed by God to have significant meaning for you and for me in the midst of our suffering. And so his life, his service in the temple of God wasn't a mistake. It was a larger divine plan and purpose at work that he could know. There was a place kept for him by grace. We're reminded of that in the midst of our suffering as well. It's not purposeless. It's not pointless. God is working through our suffering, through our circumstances, even to reveal his perfect plan for us. What comfort that gives us. Even in the midst of sorrow, when God seems silent, we can be comforted that God's faithful covenant love surrounds us. God will ultimately deliver us for the sake of Jesus, and He will establish His purposes in our lives, even through suffering. This psalm also calls us to continue in prayer to persist in prayer, to persist in crying out to God even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of the darkness of our souls. In verse 9, the psalmist spreads out his hands to God. That is a call to us to approach God with outstretched hands and broken hearts, with a, with a passionate and heartfelt prayer, even in the midst of distress. When God's afflicting waves roll over us, we mustn't be prevented from lifting our hands and our hearts to God, to learn from the example of the psalmist to cast the anchor of our faith and our prayers directly into heaven, even amidst all of the perils of the shipwreck to, me, to which we may be exposed as believers. But finally, we are also called here in this psalm to trust God and to believe His Word. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the troubling situations of our lives, our eyes are often clouded to the work of God in our situation. We, we, we can't see clearly the, the providence of God in times of sorrow. Our own human weakness and inability often leaves us unable to properly interpret the grief in our lives. We don't understand it. We can't parse it out. We can't make sense of it. And sometimes in our suffering, um, ill-advised words come out of our mouths. Sometimes unbelieving thoughts occupy our minds, and it's in those moments that we have to focus our attention upon the truth of God, the truth about God, not what we feel, to focus our attention upon the truth of God. And what does the psalmist confess? Right at the beginning of the psalm, in verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. The psalmist, though he goes on to describe the deep darkness of his soul and of his circumstances, he begins by claiming the salvation of God. He begins by claiming the covenant faithfulness of God for himself. That's an intensely personal admission. And from that point forward, he keeps praying. 
He doesn't give up. He doesn't lose heart to the point of cursing God. He doesn't stop crying out to God as if he's lost heart, as if his prayers are no good. He continues to cry out, revealing that his faith, no matter how weak, no matter how battered by his circumstances, his faith is anchored in the God of his salvation. Brothers and sisters, that's to be our admission as well. In times of human weakness, in the darkness and trials of our lives, to make that good confession, God of my salvation, I cry out to you in faith. And so lest we become carried away by our complaining and our murmuring against God in troubled times, we need to bring to mind constantly what we know, despite how we feel. We need to bring to mind what we know, that He is the God of our salvation. He's the God of salvation for all who put their trust in Him. It's that confession, it's that knowledge that puts a bridle on our depression. It's that knowledge and that confession that restrains the excess of our sorrow. It's that confession, that truth that shuts the door against despair. It's that confession, that knowledge that strengthens us and prepares us to live the Christian life, which is a life of endurance under the cross. We can see finally that darkness is not the final word here. Even though this psalm of lament um, is a dark one, we see that light is on the horizon. Because Psalm 89, the psalm that comes right after the most depressing and hopeless-sounding psalm in the book, explodes with a statement of praise. Though God seems silent in Psalm 88, though He seems far off, though He seems uncaring, book 3 ends with Psalm 89 with the glorious announcement that God's promises are sure. He's faithful. He saves and He rescues His elect, the ones He loves. So ultimately, our prayer is not, darkness is my closest friend. Our prayer ultimately is, what a friend we have in Jesus. Our declaration is this, Psalm 89, verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. May that be our confession, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, even in the midst of the deep, dark night of the soul. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we confess that the words of the psalmist we resonate with them, especially amidst the difficult hours, those sleepless nights when we cannot sleep. We toss and we turn because we are weighed down, we are burdened by the troubles of this life. We are so often filled with trouble, and our cries seem to go unanswered. You seem so far away, you seem so silent, O oh God. And yet you have proven to us that you are not silent. You are not distant. 
You have answered our cries perfectly by providing our Lord Jesus Christ, who came and suffered to the greatest degree everything that is described here in this psalm. He was truly abandoned. His friends truly left him in time of trouble. He truly went to death. He truly bore your wrath. His cries went unanswered so that ours will never go unanswered. We thank you for not only our Lord's sacrifice, but also his sympathy for us, that as our great high priest, he is sympathetic. He understands our weaknesses. And he lives and reigns forever at your right hand, interceding for us and advocating for us. We thank you for him. And we thank you that even in the midst of the darkness of our souls, we can confess these words that you've given us here in the Psalter, knowing that even as we lay out our complaints, even as we, we ask you to vindicate us and spare us and meet our needs, not only have you already done that in Jesus, but, O oh Lord, you will continue to do so because you are the God of our salvation. Lord, despite how we feel, May we always make that good confession and know that you are the God who is working all things together for our good, for our salvation, for the salvation of all of your elect. Though we may have to wait, though there may be many dark nights of the soul yet to come, may we cast the anchor of our hope in you and know that you will bring us safely home. Comfort our souls with this wonderful knowledge, O oh Lord, we pray. In this, for the name of Christ and for His glory, amen. Well, we'd like to uh, sing another hymn tonight, number 480 from the, the Trinity Psalter hymnal. This may be a new song to many of you. The tune will be familiar. But this song is based on the beautiful and simple yet, yet profound question one to the Heidelberg Catechism. I have no other comfort which life and death endures than that I have my Savior's whose death my life secures. To you with soul and body, O Jesus, I belong. You are my only master and my redeemer strong. Let's stand together and sing these comforting words, all four of these stanzas, number 480.
uh, before we receive the benediction and we sing the doxology together, just a reminder to uh, take a seat and the, um, the um, ushers will usher you out row by row. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, receive now uh, the parting blessing of our God. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.